0: Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Today's guest is Megan Abbott. Anthony, Edgar, Barry, and International Thriller Writers Award winner Megan Abbott is one of my favorite writers working today. Not only the prolific author of acclaimed short stories and novels including Queenpin, You Will Know Me, and Give Me Your Hand, she has also written the book-length nonfiction work The Street Was Mine. White masculinity in hard-boiled fiction and film noir. Formerly a staff writer on David Simon's HBO original series The Deuce, as a screenwriter, Megan Abbott recently adapted her gorgeous novel Dare Me for the USA Network and served as a co-creator, executive producer, and showrunner of the series which was repeatedly named one of the best TV shows of 2020 and has also just been made available to stream on Netflix as well. A Gross Point Michigan native who fell in love with old movies as a child and is still a highly respected film buff, she's also a contributor and essayist for the Criterion Collection. Megan, who received her PhD in English and American Literature from New York University, has worked as a professor at NYU, the State University of New York, as well as the New School University. And in 2013 to 2014, she served as the John Grisham Writer in Residence at Ole Miss. Well known for her rich prose and female centric spin on the crime genre. In the past, Megan edited the anthology A Hell of a Woman, which was devoted to female crime fiction, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, Salon, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times Magazine, The Guardian, and more. Megan's hotly anticipated 10th novel, The Turnout, is due to be released this summer on July 6, 2021. Today, it's both an honor and a privilege to speak to her about one of her favorite filmmakers, as well as mine, Mr. Martin Scorsese. So, welcome, Megan, to Watch with Jen. Okay, well, I'll jump in. So, Megan, how are you doing, and how have you been adapting to the ongoing pandemic this year?
1: Um, I think everyone, I guess the answer that everybody has, which is under the circumstances, okay. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I mean, like, like I'm sure for you, you know, the big, the biggest struggle has been missing going to the movie theaters. Uh, that has been the ache, the ache is so strong now. It's almost unbearable, but but one of the good side is that I think I have watched more movies at home this year than any time in ever. So. Yes,
0: no, I agree with you. Did it take some getting used to to adapt to writing during the pandemic, or did you find it like a safe haven through it your writing?
1: Much the same for oh, novels. You're very solitary. Um, for and for TV, most of it quickly moved over from you know to to Zoom calls, and uh, so um that hasn't that hasn't changed very much it's just that you know when you're a writer so much of your life is solitary so you really look forward to those evenings where you get to see people and go to the movies and and drink and so all all the all that stuff is gone.
0: (laughs) I know it is so hard yeah yeah I write from home primarily and I mean, I would go to screenings, obviously, but now everything is electronic, so it's been really weird. But this is a nice way to still stay social with everyone. Yes, definitely. Yes. Well, in addition to, of course, your great photos of New York City, plus documenting your adventures and film watching and puzzles, you have a great (laughs) puzzle collection. You're well known on social media for your daily inspo posts of whatever might be inspiring you at the moment. Do you have a big index or library of items on your hard drive that you pull from? Or are these things that you're looking up for your work, like on a day-to-day basis?
1: I do now have like a little storehouse for like things I'll find and I'll think someday I want to post that. Um, But it it really for me primarily is a way to get myself motivated uh, um, and looking at. Pictures going down various rabbit holes, whether it's you know neon signage from the '40s or yeah. um, or sort of a deep dive. A lot of them are you know quotes and photos for you know various actors or writers or directors for whom it's their birthday and trying to find the great quote and the great image. Uh, it's really entirely for me, but it's so nice that that people. Um, enjoy it and respond because that gets I guess it gets the energy going for me um, and enables me it gives me an excuse to (laughs) to keep um, uh, being on the hunt I suppose for for things I don't know about or images I haven't seen so it's it's uh, yeah it's it's a it's a pleasure pleasure principle but I I think it does have payoff it gets me writing
0: oh good yeah, it's funny how you'll watch a movie and look up an actor in it like a bit player, and then it leads you to a different area and you're like, oh, what have they all been in and you're looking up every cast member, and it takes you down a million rabbit holes. So I was wondering how you went about choosing that and it sounds like you like the hunt as much as we like the hunt so that's great.
1: Yes. No. That it's that is also one of the gifts, I suppose, of of our our of our internet um, derived life is that we can dig out find these yeah. amazing and strange and strange images and people sort of who have been lost to history. I think about that a lot, um, mm-hmm. especially with some of the photographers that people don't really know um and their images are so incredible and striking and so there's a there's a nice I, I love it when someone does that for me um yeah or, me too you know or clues me into a movie I don't know there's been so much of that everyone's been doing you know really <laughs> finding quite obscure stuff now you can yeah. get you know, it's been great Cool. Well,
0: speaking of your work and inspiration, The Turnout is set to be released this summer. So for those listening who might not be familiar, what is the book about and what can fans expect from you this time?
1: So this is um, it's about um, two sisters who run a ballet school um, and uh, and. Something bad happens, which is okay. hard. <laughs> yeah. <That's But> good. <laughs> I, yeah. I always wanted to write something set in the world of ballet, um, and I've always wanted something um, about a, you know a family, a sort of very complicated family, one of those families supposed to kind of gray gardens or flowers in the attic way where like things don't really change everything the world is moving around them but they're still so locked in their family Mm -hmm. drama um and then that gets disrupted by an an outside force. so um Mm -hmm. so yeah but you know the story itself is is rather pulp and lord which i love um um but um Oh, what I, this is one of the things I love about Scrooge is when we start talking about him is in some ways it's a story that could be treated very... Um, dismissively and I like to give it full operatic <laughs>
0: attention. <laughs> oh I can't wait. We do share pretty similar tastes in movies so there were so many different directions we could have gone for today's episode but one of the first things that impressed me about you when I discovered your work and taste years ago through Kim Morgan shout out to Kim, was just how much the films of Martin Scorsese meant to you, including After Hours, which is one of my favorites as well. And I really loved your idea to focus today, not on his entire career, because we would be here like all week, and it would be overwhelming. Yeah. (laughs) Although we can certainly reference other things in his career, but the films of his that you think are specifically overlooked or underrated are the ones that we chose today. But before we dive into that, I would love to know what it is about Scorsese's movies that you respond to. Do you happen to remember the first one you ever saw or an early one that meant a lot to you?
1: Yeah, I do. It was really as a kid. Um, mean Streets was my dad's favorite movie. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, and he it, he didn't like to see movies more than once. Um, he always likes me new, but Mean Streets he had seen dozens of times and. <laughs> And so I was indoctrinated early to that, and it um, it was very exotic to me growing up in suburban Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, but I was responded intensely to its its themes, its sort of the drama. I always, you know, as a little kid, had loved gangster movies, so there was that element. But I loved all the complicated Catholicism and the yes. <laughs> you know, And um, all of that. And it was so, um, the way music is used in that, particularly soundtrack, Mm -hmm. um, I'd never seen anything like that before. And so that was an early one. And then in my teen years, that really kind of spilled forth into just seeing everything of his um, and just, um, and being influenced, I suppose, by the way, his his aesthetic there's um, something in all of his movies where I get so excited even the ones that don't entirely work when I'm watching it they play mm-hmm. so much it feels like he knows all our, our uh, nerve endings and our points and, yes. and there's just such beauty in the, um, beauty where you don't expect it and ugliness where you don't expect it um, yeah All of that really formed my aesthetic so much so that I I didn't even realize that that had happened until much later, you know, because the marks were made so early.
0: Yeah, oh, that's cool. I'm from the Minneapolis area, actually, so suburbs there, and so my first glimpse of New York was really in Scorsese movies or Woody Allen movies, all the Nora Ephron, and I remember being drawn to New York just through these movies. And I remember telling somebody like, when I'm done with college, like I am moving to New York, sitting there, like, you just want to move to New York in the movies. Not really what New York is. I always thought that was really funny, but yeah. Yes. Yeah, so
1: I just, I, I was the same, exactly the same. Uh, now I've been, I stayed in New York. I came to New York and stayed now for almost 25 years. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Oh,
0: great. Well, I thought it might be easiest to go through the films chronologically. Obviously, feel free to jump around or cite anything. But I thought we would dive in with The King of Comedy from 1982, starring Robert De Niro, Jerry Lewis, and Sander Bernhard. The film came off the heels of Raging Bull, which garnered both De Niro and his editor, Thelma Schoonmacher, an Academy Award amazingly, and I had totally forgotten this, that was the first feature that Thelma had ever cut for him. I was shocked by that. King of Comedy is a pitch black comedy about a man's obsession with a Johnny Carson-style Tonight Show host, and it was made as a stylistic response to Raging Bull. Scorsese said he kept hearing people call Bull beautiful with some of its flowy takes and angles, and he decided he wanted to make this one plainer with no close-ups and more in the mode of early 1900 silent movies by Edwin S. Porter, particularly The Life of an American Fireman. It was written by the former Newsweek film critic Paul D. Zimmerman and based on his book, and just like Raging Bull, the project originated with De Niro, who owned the rights. The timing of the film, which is deeply unsettling, is eerie. It was filmed after John Lennon was murdered. And during production, that's when John Hinckley Jr.'s assassination attempt on President Reagan was carried out. And he, of course, was obsessed with Jodie Foster and inspired by Scorsese's Taxi Driver. As disturbing as that film is, I think this one might be even more chilling. It cuts very close to the bone. De Niro gives what Scorsese considers his best performance as Rupert Pupkin. So what did you think of The King of Comedy? And why do you think this one stands out in his filmography? Well,
1: it. And I should say, I know for people who are real Scorsese enthusiasts, they don't consider this underrated. They consider it brilliant. Really yes. But I do think the general public thinks, I mean, it, it's interesting because the Joker, last year's the Joker borrows so heavily from both this and taxi drivers. So it's mm-hmm. probably, a, a, I mean, one might even say steals. <laughs> yes. um, so I do think it's having a, a resurgence, but um it I mean for me, it it's a movie that you can watch but truly two ways at once because mm-hmm. it is a very funny movie. yeah, it's really like and the more you watch it, that that tends to be the element you focus on mm-hmm. but on first viewing in particular and or thinking of it in relation to taxi driver or its historical moment it's quite it's quite chilling yes <laughs> um, and in our fame obsessed culture now so much more so than then it feels really predictive a uh, cassandra mm-hmm. like take on the intensity of Fandom um, or stand-up. Yeah. As <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, I mean, for me, it so belongs. I mean, all the movies we're talking about today are very New York centric, um, but they it really captures something very specific about an, a New York energy and a and a particularly compli- complicated relationship to to fame because New York is a place where. Famous people <laughs> are everywhere <laughs> in many ways. It's uh, like like parts of LA. It's uh, you're always brushing up against um, someone, um, but um, the um, rabidity can turn so quickly, yeah. uh, and. Even also, very prescient the notion of what how quickly fame can come and how one achieves it and what what one mm-hmm. can do to um, take their place um, in the pantheon. Um, so, all of that is, and then there's the element of this the person who, and this is, you know, a grand tradition, certainly in all Scorsese's work comes back and forth but in all noir is this the lonely man who can't yes. quite make it work right he mm-hmm. he can simulate you know, just like Travis Bickle can, you know, go for 40 minutes in the movie and sort of uh, start to have like a normal quote unquote life. Um, and then he's, and then he can't, um, this is, this is that similar dynamic, but played, I think in much less operatic style, it's much closer uh-huh. to the bone, it feels much more real, Um and and Jerry Lewis contributes to that, of course, because he's yes. playing a Johnny Carson like figure, but he's Jerry Lewis, and uh, yeah. um, playing Jerry, yeah. Yes, yes. His his performance is incredible to me. I and think so. Yeah. I, I wish he'd done a hundred movies like that because he's. Yeah. So he's so good in it. Um, so yeah, it feels like there's just so much going on in it to be unpacked. It's also just such a satisfying and upsetting sort of little fairy tale of a movie. Um, and, and I feel, and sort of tabloid the long sort of New York tabloid movie tradition as well. Mm -hmm. Um, all of that. Um, and to me, it's a perfect synthesis of all that, and it's always so surprising. You go back and you see its reception at the time, which was dismal. If I have yes. a, um, um But I think it. Get, I think its time has has proven kind to it and been able to see it um, as the as the great work it is. I know you're a fan as well.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's very well done. Jerry Lewis was extraordinary. And what's interesting is I think he's the best in scenes where he actually doesn't have much to say. He's just reacting. Like the two that really stuck out in my mind are when De Niro has brought a character he called like, you'll be my queen and I'll be the king, brings them out to jerry's country house and jerry comes in from playing golf and approaches them and just the observation of what these people are doing in his house and i could have you arrested and he uh, i think it'd be easy to overplay that emotion or to freak out on them but he really underplays it and it's kind of chilling also when sandra bernhardt who is really great in this movie she is frightening (laughs) tries to seduce him and I guess that scene really did scare Jerry Lewis that's what I heard anyway but when she is coming on to him just the reaction of just how unnerving the whole situation is and how sad it's really good work and I think shows a side of Jerry Lewis that we really haven't seen before
1: yeah Another example that that (laughs) makes me laugh every time, which is when he um, he's often being approached for autographs constantly through the movie, and there's an old woman on a payphone who sees him and asks for an, an autograph and and then she asks if he can get on the phone and talk to her son who's in the hospital and he says he can she said I hope you get you cancer can answer. yes <laughs> New York by the way but he just like keeps walking off and someone told me that that actually happened to Jerry Lewis that that was his idea but the way he just sort of keeps walking but he like totally yeah uh, sort of horrified by it but he sort of has to be used to these sort of daily horrors and I mean I think that all points to scenes that like there's so many scenes in it like that country house episode that feel just as easily that they could be in a screwball comedy as mm-hmm. as they could be in a horror movie as they could be so the whole movie you're so unsettled because you don't know where this is gonna go or how dark it's gonna get or if or how silly it's gonna get and that like, keeping you off balance the whole movie like that is is just quite a feat and one of the things I love most about it. I mean when you rewatch it even though you know what's gonna happen, it's still really uh. yes, <laughs> absolutely.
0: It reminds me of Psych 101 when we were learning about delusions, and my professor gave the example of somebody that she had actually dealt with in practice, who was like 99% completely normal, very lucid, knew you know what day it was, uh, everything. Except for that one delusion of theirs, which was, I believe it was Richard Gere is going to fly out tonight to pick me up. And just was completely certain that this was going to happen. And then would go back to just talking about, like, going grocery shopping and day-to-day activities. And I think why this movie is so unsettling is because it's, like, flipped. He's can 1% function, and it's, like, 99% complete delusion. And so it's a really scary thing to kind of be in the presence of sort of like Travis Bickle. But I remember reading an interview with Scorsese where he was asked, you know, who is more dangerous? And he actually said, I think it's possibly Rupert Pupkin. And that shocked me a little bit, but I think you can see it because you're not sure what he's going to do, just like Travis. But Travis kind of had his mission in this, you're not sure where it ends. Like the ending is what I wanted to talk to you about. What did you think of the ending overall?
1: It is perfect, right? I mean, yes. It, you know, it, it's the, you know, just as Taxi Driver has the ending, it needs to have this does. Um, because it it essentially enters the the delusion. Um, yes. Which seems so perfect for me. I'm so intrigued, though, by what you um, and it relates to the ending, like that what Scorsese finding him his sort of most dangerous character and you agreeing because like weirdly, I don't find him, um, I mean, I find Sandra Bernhardt in the movie far scarier. Oh, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I feel like, like, I feel like there are certain great artists and there are mm-hmm. many great comedians that have a real darkness in them that if they can find their creative outlet will only ever be um yes um, um find that form and it is a notion that he you know he really could be okay um he doesn't really want to hurt anybody um at all and in fact he just believes in himself in the way that we're supposed <laughs> to and this is you know um he is a product i suppose of of america's many fantasies about itself about that you can become anything that you do everything to achieve your dreams and that and that that fame is the highest of um of realms because you know he's not working on his jokes he's working on being famous he's working on
0: being (laughs) that's a great observation yes
1: Oh yeah, it's just endlessly fascinating in it and I would love to know what someone under 20 watching it now what they think because I bet they would see a lot of I bet they would have a really sharp take on it because we've mm-hmm. so entered that dilute that last moment. Yes. <laughs> it is our world right now.
0: <laughs> I know. Yeah, the ending I think seems more realistic today. Yeah. Back then it was kind of clear okay we're in his delusion now there might be part of it the book might be real that kind of thing oh. but today it's like no that probably would happen as just daddy oh, yeah, you know, as it is yeah
1: Hilaria Baldwin is was apparently pending to pretending to be Spanish for you We had no idea yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was so weird yes <laughs> oh Well, next up we have After Hours from 1985. I'm not sure if you remember that children's book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. That's what I think of when I think of this movie because it's my favorite one to watch when I have a rotten day because in the film we're watching a bored word processor played by Griffin Dunn have the very worst night of his life. Things initially start out promising. He meets a beautiful woman played by Rosanna Arquette in a diner and they bond over a Henry Miller book. She gives him her phone number. He calls it under the guise of wanting a plaster of Paris paperweight that her roommate Linda Fiorentino makes. He goes to Soho to see her and then everything that can go wrong does. And by the end of the night, Dunn winds up literally running for his life from the various oddballs he encounters, including a waitress played by Terry Gar, and an ice cream vendor played by Catherine O'Hara. Yes, Moira Rose is in this. I know the younger generation that will blow their mind. The film's theme of survival and needing to survive was one shared by Scorsese because it was made after Paramount Pictures dropped The Last Temptation of Christ. He wanted to work and work fast, so they made this film independently. It was produced by... Griffin Dunn and Amy Robinson, based on the script by Columbia University student Joseph Minton. Scorsese uses a lot of paranoid symbolism. There's a great mythological shot where Fiorentino tosses down keys to Dunn, and it's like he's entering a whole new world, a very dark world. And it was shot with a lot of film noir, German expressionism, and Hitchcockian tributes There are close-ups for no reason, like of the light switch. It was kind of a jokey thing. And there's odd angles, anything to keep you on your toes and make you anxious. It's one of the only movies I've ever watched twice in a 24-hour period, the first time that I ever saw it. And it's a definite favorite. So what are your thoughts on After Hours? And of course, the journey that Paul takes in the movie.
1: Yeah, this one I picked especially because I had sort of a revelatory rewatch this year. Actually, sort of I had two of them. I had too many stages with this movie, which I've always loved, but I loved it originally. Well, I was only very young when I first saw it, and I just loved it. But later, (laughs) I came to think of it in the way you're talking about, it's more like Alice in Wonderland. He's down Rabbit hole, right? And he meets these casts of characters, each one sort of stranger than the next. And he, can, you know, and they're they're drugging <laughs> him, they're beating him up, they're all these sort of things, much like what happens to Alice. Um, and so I loved that element of it. And and then you know the the New York, especially the New York of the eighties element, which you know um, when it had that um, you know, it had a certain mystery um, um, at that. That time because it was still pre- pretty rough, um, and you had to like you had to be a little more on your toes than, <laughs> than you would later. And um, it, it was an edginess to Manhattan that that is not not there anymore. <laughs> um, so, but then um, the last two times I've watched it, but especially this year. I like I watch it now, and I think Paul is terrible. He's such he is. Terror. He and I, I never saw it that way the first time. And <laughs> terrible to all those women in particular, but the men too. Yeah. And, and he uh, he he's you know he gets so mad at Rosanna Arquette early on. Yeah. Uh, because of his own issues. I don't want to spoil the, the details for anybody, but he's he's very rude and harsh with everyone, even the people that try to help him, which Terry Garr and Catherine O'Hara point out several times. Yes. Uh, so I love that you know that it, the movie kind of turns, you know, any great work of art, that's what you want. That it sort of mm-hmm. turns on you. It seems to change between viewings as you change, as the world change. And it made me love it more because it's it you know, it it enriches everything that he's not just this sort of every, every man, maybe he is. No. But he's a, <laughs> but, uh, we hope not. Yeah. yeah, we hope not. No, and he's um um, sort of an entitled yuppie guy um, who's sort of irritated that his job is not important and um, and wants to get laid. and Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's his goal. <laughs> yes. and everyone in it is better and more interesting than he is. Um, and is going, some of them going through really rough, bad stuff um, that he doesn't care at all about. He just wants to get home. So um, I think it's just such a work of art and maybe the most underrated um, Scorsese because it's so 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 perfect, and maybe because it is coming off that those disappointments mm-hmm. um, um, and wanting to do something in the way that of uh, The a lot of the the sort of pulp directors he loved um, that would do quick yes. and dirty and and they end up being like deeply full of emotion like raw emotion because they mm-hmm. haven't been processed and and the script hasn't been overworked and everything feels no. of, uh, rough and raw um, um so yeah to me it's 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 just perfect <laughs> oh absolutely
0: and that's a really good observation because it begins. Right at his job, he's training in somebody new, uh, played by Bronson Pinchot. Was that <laughs> that yes.
1: Everyone in this movie, you will recognize. That's what I he know,
0: is. yes. <laughs> and he just starts telling Griffin Dunn something about, oh, I really want to write, I think it was. Or he tells him what he <laughs> wants to do. And Griffin just listens, but really kind of lets his eyes wander around, gets up and walks away in the middle of the conversation. So you're right away thinking, okay, this guy is a bit of a jerk, but then you're like on his side, but then he's still rude. It kind of is interesting when he returns back to the apartment um, after he has left Rosanna Arquette, the date goes horribly wrong and he returns later because of strange circumstances. I won't spoil it for everyone and Linda Fiorentino's boyfriend the the man who's playing the boyfriend says that wasn't nice paul and you know you should go apologize essentially lack of discipline and he starts trying to go apologize, but he can't. And so the movie is a little bit about karma and like, has he brought some of this on himself? Absolutely. So it is interesting to kind of watch it and yeah. see it differently. Yeah. But
1: and also I think it's really much, it makes so much sense that it's coming off um, Scorsese's disappointment that.
0: Yes. Like,
1: disappointment because you know, Paul is the non artist in a movie that's populated by artists, whether that's they're living artists or artists of their own lives. And it's most of it's Soho, which was the arts um, part of New York. Um, and he's going there. As a you know, a word processor essentially, and in some ways, wanting to exploit them, which wants to buy something and get laid and get yes. out there um, and take advantage of all these artists and art lovers, and and that makes so much sense that that really that Scorsese hates him because yes. this guy you know is the problem. Um, yeah, understand. Um, you know, that we're all trying to express ourselves and make beautiful things. And you come down here and you want to cannibalize it all and, and, you know, exploit us. So, um, yes. And that's why
0: we strip him of his money right away. Yeah, Yeah. because he's just the money man, essentially. And on the cab on the ride over, he loses his $20 bill. So, yes, I know. It is really good. There is so much going on in that one. Do you remember when you first saw it?
1: I think I saw it maybe when it first came out. I would have been very young, but okay. that, I probably saw it when it came on VHS. So All right. it was probably, you know, 13, 14, something like that. Um, um, and yeah, I, mm-hmm. I loved it. It was very scary to me in a way. I loved yes. <laughs> it, it it. You do you know, the way it works is I think those first viewings, you are, you do identify with him because you, you know, that's the way movies work and that's yes. <laughs> the, it plays on. Uh, it's the same thing he does with pumpkin or with Travis Bickle. It's the thing Schrader always talks about. Like if you don't give the audience a choice, they will have to go with your person. And yep. so, um so, yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's a really clever way um, of then you know creating something that just keeps turning around before your eyes and becoming a different movie each time you return to it.
0: Yes, it was interesting watching this right after King of Comedy because yeah. there's
1: actually a little
0: bit of dialogue similarity in King of Comedy, Sandra Bernhard tells Jerry Lewis, like, oh, anything could happen. I feel like cutting loose tonight. Uh Anything is possible. And then the same sort of speech happens in After Hours with Rosanna Arquette, where she starts laughing kind of awkwardly and at herself and building herself up. And so you're kind of wondering, is he subconsciously or maybe consciously linking Jerry Lewis and kind of winking at the audience like hey guys you're in for it now I thought that was interesting guys I, I had not picked up on the similarities in the dialogue before oh,
1: that's fascinating because they are sort of back to back at least in terms of output and um yeah. it and it is interesting that um in Scorsese this notion of like this sort of fear of of like a women letting loose, letting yes. their Was feelings. It. it was something I love in his movies, that there's a real anxiety about that, that, um, that he also minds, like, what is that anxiety about? And, um, mm-hmm. and he really does it successfully here that it's so, well, you can't control her and you can't get what you yes. want.
0: Yeah. And I know the ending was changed. He had this whole thing about returning down to the womb And I guess it was his father and Michael Powell who yelled at him and said, you know, he needs to fall off the truck or what kind of ending is that? And so he thought about it and thought, no, we do need him to survive. There needs to be a resurrection. So when he gave the word resurrection, I was kind of back trying to think of my like one and a half years in Catholic school of my life. Like, what did we learn again? And try to see if there were more religious things going on in the film and yeah, it's one
1: it's more like he has, to, he goes back to being the cog in the machine at the yes. end. Yes. You know, <laughs> really in the go-go 80s. Um, and he is the sort of example of this, someone who just even though he doesn't have any money, wants his money to solve his problems. And, uh, um, and then he just gets like, you know, pushed right back into the um, machine at the end, which, which I quite enjoy. I mean, there is a little yes. of German expressionism, like there's M. Metropolis. You know, yeah. A little uh, bit. Yeah. Um, and I think that is a, like a classic Fritz Lang ending if I've ever
0: seen one. Yes. Oh, that's great. Well, I was so inspired and impressed by your next choice as well because it never gets discussed in the context of his filmography and it really should because it focuses on a few themes that seem to obsess him regarding the difficulties of a relationship between two creative individuals or people on different levels of fame or a mentor slash protege dynamic. We see it early on in 1977's New York, New York, and in a twisted funhouse mirror way in The King of Comedy, but I find it especially compelling when pared down to its essence in the roughly 45-minute short film Life Lessons from New York Stories which was an anthology film that came out in 1989 and Scorsese directed the section Life Lessons and then Woody Allen and Francis Ford Coppola also directed shorts. Life Lessons was written by Richard Price and inspired by Dostoevsky's The Gambler and The Diaries of His Mistress. Polina Soslova, I might be butchering that, in the movie. The relationship plays out this time with a famous Jackson Pollock-style painter in his 50s, played by Nick Nolte and his 20-something muse, assistant and aspiring painter-slash-former lover played again by Rosanna Arquette. It chronicles the end of their relationship where she is thinking about leaving the city. She has fallen for and been rejected by someone else, Steve Buscemi of all people. Uh, but he keeps using her, that is N- Nolte does, for inspiration. It features an outstanding soundtrack produced once again by Robbie Robertson of the band and one of my favorite songs, Proko Haram's Whiter Shade of Pale, which is used throughout. I loved this one, but I had not seen it in decades, probably since like the 90s. So how about you? Have you always been a fan of Life Lessons?
1: I was, but I, I too had not seen it in a long time till I watched again early in the pandemic. Um, oh, wow. I, yeah, I was remembering how much I loved it. And, um, and then I was remembering that Richard Price, who's the famous novelist and TV writer, I had worked with him on The Deuce and was so dazzled by him um, that... <laughs> that he had, you know, when I first saw I didn't know who Richard Price was. Um, (laughs) uh, So I wanted to go back and it just blew me away in, in again, a different way. Um, Not that it flipped, all the things I loved about it the first time, which is the only movie I've ever seen where, or one of the few, where painting is made to seem this kinetic, thrilling, creative act. You know, it's really hard to make that cinematic um, the results of paintings can be cinematic, but the process, but how, you know, how much the camera moves and how thrilling it is, and how, um, and Nick, how great Nick Nolte is, and how how great Rosanna is. So the first time that those are all the things I liked, but the second time it really was what it's doing with the mentor protege relationship, particularly the female muse mm-hmm. story, because to me. It stands the 2020 test gender wise about how yes. it understands how exploitive that the, the male mentor is to his muse, how he he really just cannibalizes her and tosses her aside. And when she she, she resists, she just doesn't want to do it anymore um and and also it gives depth to her tragedy that she feels like she's just she's just not good enough uh an artist herself and and he's a reminder of that and it it's i just was so like i thought it really like i was thinking all this in recent years with the phantom thread which i also think was a pt anderson's movie which is a great deconstruction of the muse and the Mm -hmm. uh, and And to me, this, I mean, it's really more muse and artist than mentor protege because he doesn't mentor her at all. No. He just takes (laughs) her and takes. Um, And so I, I just loved how, um, how sort of sophisticated and complicated it was about all of that and how much she was choosing for a certain amount of time to be used and, and gained from it. But then but then you know it wasn't enough anymore, um, and that he will then just move on to the next one. So it just yes, very, very, so elegantly done, um, and so um, just sort of just shows you the exhilaration when Scorsese is just like he's got he had this one all figured out
0: yeah everything
1: everything works and everything lacks into place and it's so neatly um managed and um and you go away and you just want to watch it again immediately which you can because it's only 45 minutes so that's what I did the first time
0: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely I think it's also his most erotic film yeah, And I like the way everything is thinly veiled. I kind of thought it might have been good training ground or helped prepare him for Age of Innocence. Yes, I was going to say. Up. That's yes, yeah. exactly. And the way it uses music, because overall, there it isn't really dialogue heavy compared to some of his other movies. So I loved that even the way he uses choruses. Of songs like the need me part of Night and Day because he needs her essentially to inspire him. He gets turned on and then goes right to work. And so I thought that was really interesting. It kind of ties in with bringing out the dead because of the way it uses music to fill us in on things that maybe we should know about our characters before we even understand them or they explain things. And I love that about Scorsese. The sound in his movies is always so good. And I remember reading an interview with him where he talked about why he plays with different styles of music in films and wants to surprise you with some song selections Was because he was like walking down New York, you might pass an apartment where like a couple is arguing and then a couple floors down you'll get opera and then a few stores over you'll hear Motown and you'll hear all this different music play out. I thought that was kind of interesting and I thought this movie really captures his way with music in a way that then bringing out the dead does extraordinarily well as well.
1: Yes, yes. And he's been so influential in that regard. Um, it's hard to imagine how the use of songs, you know, everyone is sort of stolen from him and he stole from himself sometimes. Yes. In the heart, it is the one I, I think of first up. you know, when that's inevitable, they all do that. But um, I think it's really it always comes out of character and it never feels cheap. Like often a lot of these, especially cause he can get these big famous songs and they're often used really ham handedly in other movies, the same songs, like this, title, it's 1967. Or yes. for him, it's always, it's always about an emotion he needs to invoke in you. So you will understand this character in this moment more deeply. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I have my go-tos for that. Like, in any movie, you know we're going to Vietnam if you hear Fortunate Son by The Creedence. Uh, Yeah, yeah. or we're going to London, we better play London Calling. That kind of thing. You're Uh, not going to get that in Scorsese movies at Uh, all.
1: Yes. No.
0: Yes. Well, the last film you did select is the most recent one, 1999's Bringing Out the Dead which was indeed overlooked in that historically great cinematic year. Based on the novel by Joe Connolly, which I have not read, it was adapted by Paul Schrader. The film finds Scorsese back in his visceral paranoid sweet spot of movies that showcase the darkness and wildness of New York City at night. Just like Whiter Shade of Pale becomes the musical theme of life lessons, Van Morrison's TV sheets come screaming out at you right away, and it's revisited throughout, and the alarm-like sounds of the harmonica really fit in with the sound of the siren of the ambulance, driven by the restless, insomniac, burned-out, and on-edge paramedic, played by Nicolas Cage. As a man who is still haunted by the ghost of a teenage girl he couldn't save, he also is a man who has not saved anyone in months. It is a very expressionistic film, uses flashes of primary and secondary colors in Robert Richardson's great cinematography. The cast of this one is also phenomenal. Cage's then-wife and the sister of Rosanna Arquette, Patricia Arquette, co-stars along with John Goodman, Ving Rhames, and Tom Sizemore. It's a film that perhaps with some of his religious iconography and symbolism, and the fact that both he and screenwriter Paul Schrader did consider careers as priests or ministers, it reminds me of Schrader's other work, particularly Light Sleeper which is one of my favorites. Two, I, me too. Oh, good. Yes. I really responded to it in 99. I remember owning it on video, but I had not seen this one in ages either. So what was your relationship to bringing out the dead? Did you see it then or discover it later on? And what are your thoughts?
1: I saw it then, by then it was this, I was at the age where I was just seeing every score says you move your courses. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I, um, I do think this may be of all the movies we're talking about the most under undervalued one. Because I think it yeah. was considered Scorsese light at the time or like something he's doing to fill the time between more significant movies and and I um but I liked it, but uh I can't say that I had rewatched it all until I think last April. It was another one of my pandemic ones and it just knocked my socks off. I thought I really slept on this for a long time because I mean, there is just the element you're taught, that I always respond to in both Scorsese and Schrader is the like intense sense of guilt. Um, whether yes, you know, I know that Schrader isn't Catholic, but he, yeah, he has his own version of uh, that the Calvinist, uh, yeah, Dutch maybe, Calvinist, yeah, there's a lot of uh, overlap, and and um, that um, it's so stripped bare in this movie, maybe in more than any other. Mm-hmm. Um, of his movies, um, that that sense of, I mean, he, Cage is so haunted. Um, yeah, this is the like really existentially his only reason for existing is to, to save people, and um, and you mentioned expressionism. It's definitely his most expressionistic movie, and that you feel how he's feeling in every moment. Yeah. And, that's what makes it um, even more than these others we've talked about so harrowing. Like you feel like you're moving in that ambulance, you're gliding down the street, Tom Sizemore is yelling in your ear. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, and it just has these moments of just the sort of glorious um beauty at the same time like unexpectedly which also to me is quintessential new york is that like the trash and the treasure are side by side and Mm -hmm. moments of of complete like filth and ugliness can all of a sudden there's this just beautiful uplift and uh light comes on somewhere and you see something and you're moved and uh um it just is a sensory overload in the best way to me. Um, yeah. And it's a way to, I think it's like it seems to have a purpose, right? It's not style. I think a lot of people talk about it, it's just a bunch of style, which is something people, <laughs> yeah, as the album. It never feels true to me, but especially not in this because you need it, all that needs to happen for you to understand him. Yeah. You know, all in the service of understanding the state he's in. This is someone who is in a sense of collapse existential collapse because mm-hmm. they, they can't they can't do the only thing they think that makes them worthy of existing.
0: Yeah. And it's great that you brought up the uplift because when I was thinking back on the movie, I was just remembering how dark it was and how manic the Nicolas Cage character was, but there are those just shocking moments of beauty. Like when he picks up Patricia Arquette and they ride together in the back of an ambulance and you hear Natalie Merchant's song, These Are the Days, just starts playing. And all of a sudden it's like, we're on a first date, even though it's the back of an ambulance. And then it turns into a horror movie in other places. So it is constantly changing or as you talked about earlier turning on different angles right in front of you yeah
1: Yes, and it, it, um, now that you're, you're saying it's also too – it's one of the things I loved about Uncut Gems, and I know the Sapti brothers are very influenced by Scorsese, and and that is a similar approach, which is it's got to ramp you up so high. Yeah. You have to be in this state of agitation so yeah. that you will understand, and and so you will see these moments of beauty when they come, and they will surprise you. It's, um, it's, it's really – um such a trick these movies play on you you know yeah you know in some ways they're watching you um and that's that's one of the things i love most about them you you can't have a non-reaction to them you're in it yes you are your heart is in your throat the whole time and (laughs) um and you yeah and you don't know even where to situate yourself and yeah Therefore, it's so, you know, it's, the, I mean, isn't that those of us who really love movies, we want to be overwhelmed, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I think we have here. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. That movie, it does overwhelm you and it brings back your own experiences. Yeah. yeah. With any emergencies you had. Okay, you brought up the deuce and it made me want want to ask you this question because I know taxi driver was a big influence when you're writing on the deuce. Did you guys talk about several Scorsese films as influences and were there ones in particular that you found really did inspire you the most?
1: Yeah. I mean, we talked about a lot of New York seventies movies. I suppose we all came in like, you know, that we all knew in some ways you had to lean against Taxi Drive, like you had yes. to walk away from that because it's too on the nose for us. And, um, and you know, something like t- Taking a Palm One, Two, Three, like it would be more like those kinds of movies that would, um, move us a, a little further away from um the canon um uh because you have to kind of deep familiarize it for people um, oh absolutely yeah but um still like all of us love these movies so we would be quoting them all the time um and you know you there's it's inescapable um to have a new york 70s movies about pimps and prostitutes and that <laughs> taxi driver like always in the room but but yeah you had to kind of um in and, in and, and there you know that's more of a the deuce is more of an ethnographic approach it's yeah more like you where Scorsese's movies generally there are some exceptions but they tend to be more focused on the one person um um and um that's not that's not the yeah David's shows are much more about systems and people caught cotton systems and many characters and that overused way they talk about the Dickensian quality, but it really is that. So mm-hmm. I, I think that helped us. But obviously, we all were, um, you know, so informed by those movies. And of course, Richard Price <laughs> knows Yeah, it, you know? <laughs> I had to like control myself from asking you questions. <laughs> What's Marty really like?
0: <laughs> That's hilarious. Yes. Looking back at his filmography, are there any others that you think are kind of underrated or you wish people would discuss more?
1: You know, I mean, so, so many. Um, <laughs> I really think Age of Innocence, which you mentioned, I know that it has its fans, but I know there's a whole sect of Scorsese lovers that. I just do not appreciate that movie for yeah. Just, yeah it's incredible extraordinary movie and also gets better each time and I know Scorsese at the time said you know well this is emotional violence and it really is a, about that um, yeah um so full of feeling and you know we had talked a little in email about um, personal journey through America's cinema with Scorsese oh one of my favorites yes. If, if those of you haven't, right now, it's very hard to get. Um, I, I don't believe it's streaming anywhere, in Emmy. There's probably parts of it on YouTube, but for those who don't know it, it's a it was a multi part docu series that I remember seeing in my early 20s, um, and it changed my life. And same, <laughs> yes. I, And there are movies in there. I was writing something that I had never seen before. And I grew up watching movies. I had a pretty good account, but I had never seen. I Walk With a Zombie, Kiss Me Deadly, Johnny Guitar, Uh Naked Kiss, Samuel Fuller. I didn't know it all till I saw that. Oh, wow. And so he and when you see how much he loves movies like Douglas Sirk or or Vincent Minnelli, then you understand *Age of Innocence*. This is part of Scorsese's DNA too—that mm-hmm. he believes in the power of the melodrama and social systems and the way they—they they can destroy individual desire and 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 um, imprison us. So it's it's such a great—and then you start to see movies through his eyes. That's the beauty of watching that. I, I can't watch movies without thinking of the way he talks about them because he's not like he's just dealing with gangster movies. He All genres are in mm-hmm. there. You know, there, there's horror, there's suspense, there's, you know, there's, you know, love stories, there's screwball comedies. Um, and he, you know, he focuses on not famous scenes in them or famous moments. He oh. trains your eye to see what, what the director is doing. And, and to me, that's, um, I can't imagine, Um, writing anything or watching a movie without that sort of somewhere buzzing in the back of my head.
0: No, I agree with you completely. I saw it in high school. And I think it was maybe around the same time I got Scorsese on Scorsese. Oh, yes. And in high school, I remember AP history, I chose Age of Innocence. I was always making all of my classes turn into film classes in my mind. So I wanted to choose Age of Innocence. I loved the book anyway, but that way I could talk about all the Scorsese movies and like what it was about that, that was linked to in his other films. And I remember distinctly not wanting to use the phrase virgin whore when I was in high school. So I was like trying to carefully use other language, like a party girl versus an innocent woman, or something to that effect. And my teacher, I think, left a note saying, I know what you're talking about. And yes, like, we understand, it's fine. And she's like, you did so much research. And I didn't have to, I didn't want to like, break her heart and say, these books are just on my shelf. And I'm like, obsessed. So I'm like, thank you. Yes. But personal journey was the game changer for me. I remember him talking about Silver Lode, and that was a Western. It was done by Alan Juan. and that kind of helped inspire something I remember writing in film school about masculinity and the McCarthyist Westerns of the 50s era, and so when I was reading about you and found out that you wrote something on masculinity in film noir, I was like, ah... Woman after my heart, that is awesome for sure.
1: No, absolutely. Yeah. People don't, you know, give him enough credit for these movies, up to including perhaps the best example is *The Irishman*. That they're, yes. they're eviscerations of what we now call toxic masculinity. <laughs> And how men are just as much victims of that, um, and are trapped by it. And I think you know, there's so many ways you can look at his body of work, and that that lens is one of them. And one of the other, I mean, maybe in that personal journey, the thing that stuck stuck with me the most is i think about this all the time when i write for tv is that he talks about he puts directors in different categories like the illusionist and the storyteller the smuggler yes smuggler is mine so the smuggler smuggler are usually b-movies often what we would call B noir, um, which are movies that are like you know, stripped from the headlines. Um, I I think of my books this way, um, where the story is a kind of tabloid story, and then that because it's that, and people think they know what it is, you can get all kinds of subversive stuff. In there. <laughs> yes, about whatever you want. That's that's the beauty of genre. Soderbergh talks about this too. Mm-hmm that like, I, he doesn't get why people don't understand the genre is the way you get to talk about everything because yeah. it gives you your story engine. It sets up really primal, um, conflicts and then, mm-hmm. you, know, you, it, you know, the world is yours. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh,
0: that's brilliant. So, for the future we have the turnout coming are there any other new projects on the horizon that you can talk about i won't pressure you obviously yeah well,
1: i'm working on a, a couple other tv projects that are in the early stages so um oh, great. And, then, and then a feature film that i'm working with someone on that is in the noir vein so it's um, oh, wonderful yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a you yeah, know, it's been good, you know, in some ways being trapped has been good. For me. <laughs> That's
0: good. Yeah. It's giving you a uh, time to focus again. Yes. Yeah.
1: We can drill down into our obsessions
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for obsessing right along with me for the past hour. I have really appreciated this, Megan.
1: Oh, it was so much my pleasure. I would love to come back anytime.
0: (laughs) Oh, I would love that. Thank you so much. That conversation was so much fun. As a girl... Growing up hindered by severe scoliosis, pain, multiple surgeries, and chronic health issues, I discovered my love of film and writing early. And when I first fell for the films of Martin Scorsese and began to read about his own issues as a child, I remember feeling like he was something of a kindred spirit a fellow sick kid who bogged down by severe asthma that even made laughing too hard a challenge, Scorsese spent his childhood largely indoors, watching and dreaming of cinema, drawing his own sequences frame by frame and in proper aspect ratio. He began directing movies, or as he calls them, pictures, long before he ever picked up a camera still finding inspiration in not only his life and the world all around him but also films from every era and country from full-length features to documentaries it's a joy to see just what he will do next and while today we barely scratch the surface of his incredibly diverse filmography It was a true pleasure discussing The Man and his movies with Megan Abbott, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation half as much as I did. Once again, I would like to thank Megan for sharing her film intuition about Martin Scorsese with us. You can binge her compulsively watchable, beautifully rendered, and singular first season of Dare Me Now on Netflix, and be sure to check out her novels if you haven't already. When I originally kicked off Watch with Jen as just a solo film recommendation show, I had no idea I was going to be fortunate enough to start a sister podcast with guests. So I began calling these episodes Watch with Jen and Friends. Between the two different names and difference in episode numbering, things started to get confusing fast. So beginning here in season two, we're going to simplify it, merge it all into one, and just call the whole podcast Watch With Jen. I am keeping the acoustic guitar theme music you guys seem to prefer, and I want to thank you so much for your valuable feedback as I continue to learn and evolve. As always, you can find me continuing to obsess about movies on my site, filmintuition.com, and on Twitter. And if you're interested in supporting my work and this podcast, please visit Film Intuition on Patreon, where you can pledge as little as a dollar a month. Until next time, please stay safe, sharpen your own film intuition, and keep watching. Happy New Year. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and Filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.